listening to Gender Ed, a podcast created and hosted by Virginia Tech's Women's Center. Join us in celebrating the experiences, achievements, and diversity within our campus community. Our conversations will explore the intersection of gender and other identities and cover topics on leadership, equity, well-being, and healthy relationships. Conversations in this episode may cover a range of topics such as sexism, hetero and cis sexism, sexual violence, and discrimination. While we hope to have meaningful and relatable conversation, this podcast is not intended to provide therapy, legal counsel, or specific advice for meeting your unique needs around coping with personal or community trauma and discrimination. If you need to report a bias incident, please contact the Dean of Students Office at 540-231-3787 or use the reporting form found at dos.bt. Edu. If you are in need of identity-based support, connect with the Cultural and Community Centers at ccc.bt.edu or 540-231-8584. If you have questions, concerns, or needs related to your mental health and well-being, please contact Cook Counseling at 540-231-6557 for more information. You can also make an appointment for advocacy at the Women's Center via email to wcsupport at vt.edu or contact our office Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. at 540-231-7806. Welcome. You're listening to Gender Ed, a production of the Women's Center at Virginia Tech. I'm your host, Katie, and I'm here with my colleague, Ashley. Thanks for joining us for our seventh episode. Today, we're talking with Tyler Pugh, an inter- industrial systems engineering student and resident advisor, Dr. Byron Hughes, the Dean of Students here at Virginia Tech, and Dante Morrison, who serves as a violence prevention coordinator with the Women's Resource Center of the New River Valley. Tyler, do you want to start with sharing with our listeners about who you are and what you do here at Virginia Tech? Yeah, sure. So, Hi, my name is Tyler Pugh. I am a senior on a five-year track. I use he, him pronouns, and I am double majoring in industrial systems engineering in Spanish, as you said. Um, My schedule is not as hectic with the classes. I'm an RA in East Ambler Johnston, um, and I'm also a Hokie ambassador, so I walk backwards giving tours a lot. Um, So I'm very glad to be here um, and excited for the conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. We're excited to hear a student perspective, as always. Um, Dr. Hughes, would you like to tell us a little bit about who you are and your professional experience here at Virginia Tech? Sure. Thank you, Ashley, and, and thanks, Katie, for the invitation to join this afternoon. Uh, great to be in a conversation of this nature. It's really important. Uh, but as you said, I serve as Dean of Students here at Virginia Tech. I have been at Virginia Tech now for about 13 years, but have been in higher education for about 20 um, and a lot of my response, well, now my responsibilities really do cut across the entire student experience for undergraduates and graduate students and professional students on all of our Virginia Tech campuses. But, uh, you know, specifically, I've, I've spent a lot of time, I think, in, in spaces like fraternity and sorority life and student conduct and housing and residence life and, and all these places where I think as we get to talking today, men, guys, boys, whatever whatever we're using, whatever label we, we're using, where they live a lot. Um, and in some of those scenarios for at least a good six years, I lived with them uh, as I was working as a, an area director or hall director in housing and residence life. Uh, and then certainly spent a lot of time in conduct as well as in fraternity and story life. But you know, one of my, uh, one part of my background is that I have actually studied masculinity and part of my dissertation research was looking at the ways in which men experience self-authorship and how that intersects with masculinity and is framed by it. 
So I've always had a kind of a natural, um, really, I guess, interest in this topic. And, and, and again, like I said, I'm looking forward to talking with you all a lot more about, you know, kind of uh, this particular topic because it floats into everything. But, you know, my experiences across my time in higher education have always put me in places and spaces where there's direct relationship occurring with students, um, all students. Uh, and, you know, that, that means you have to understand where they're coming from and understand who they are and who they want to be. So uh, I, I enjoy being Dean of Students, you know, because of what many of my experiences, both professionally and personally and, and volunteer-wise have been able to afford me to be able to do. And again, just giving me a kind of a good understanding of what, what's, what's really happening out there and, and, and what do we do to really help people thrive and flourish in the, in the best way they possibly can. I love that. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and your dissertation sounds super interesting and fascinating. Um, and finally, last but not least, Dante, um, do you want to take a minute to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about you? Yeah, sure. I appreciate the opportunity for you guys inviting me to be on this as well. Uh, again, uh, my name is Dante Morrison. I am the uh, Violence Prevention Coordinator for the Women's Resource Center. And a little bit about me, um, uh, the vast majority of my work takes place in the high schools, actually. Um, and so I've had a few opportunities uh, to kind of go into uh, some classes in on the college level, but I, I focus primarily on the high school level. And so we implement our Peace Line program to all the New River Valley high school and middle school students, uh, ranging from sixth grade up until 10th grade. And so basically uh, the premise behind our uh, curriculum is basically teaching healthy and safe relationships and cultivating healthy boundaries, helping students learn how to communicate with one another um, recognizing uh, what domestic violence is and sexual abuse, knowing what a healthy and a, uh, what a, an unhealthy relationship looks like. And so we pretty much just break down the dynamics of what a relation, a healthy and safe relationship is supposed to look like. And so we talk about a lot of different things within our classes. Um, and so we have, uh, most of the time we have a, um, our classes are, um, what do you want to call it? Most of our classes are co-ed, but then a lot of setups where we have gender-based classes, we have a male group and we have a female group. And so it definitely opens the door for different dynamics and uh, the same conversation or the same context of conversation, but it opens up different dynamics. And being a male facilitator with these roles definitely creates another uh, realm to kind of tap into. So it's very interesting. That's so awesome. I was telling Katie when um, she said that you were going to be participating, every time I see a man in essentially like a quote unquote woman's space, so like at the Women's Resource Center, it always gets me super excited um, because you mm -hmm. get to br bring such a unique perspective, but also your passion point is clearly there as well. Um, and we always need good men like that. So that's very cool that you're taking those um, conversations to high school and middle school students where um, they definitely need it um, just about as much as anybody else. So thank you for introducing yourselves. Um, we're so happy to have you. You are our first um, male guest on this podcast. And so we're thrilled to have your point of view and your perspective and your experiences for sure. Um, before we jump into the main core of this conversation, though, we do like to ask kind of a icebreaker intro question um, just to get to know a little bit more about you for our listeners. Um, and so as we're talking about um, gender and gender identity today and how that plays a role in each of our lives, um, we thought it'd be interesting if you could share how you first came to understand gender and what that looked like in your life. Wow, sure. Gosh, um, I'm not young. So, um, <laughs> but I think that, you know, it wasn't until probably later in my life and probably within the past, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years 
that I've really truly come to understand gender. And maybe it's because of uh, the academic perspective that I started taking on gender and then started understanding and paying attention to what was happening in my life and understanding how I was raised and understanding what I was seeing and, and, and others around me. And, you know, I read this book um, probably about 10 years ago called Guyland by Michael Kimmel um, and uh, the perilous world where boys become men. And, you know, they describe Guyland as kind of the places and the spaces where men, boys are together to escape the hassles of work and life and women and, and all sorts of things. And it really started, that's when I started really thinking then to think about my, about gender and how gender and how men experience manhood has such a significant impact on everything else. How, how women experience being women, how others, you know, that are, that are not in binary, you know, kind of uh, status when it comes to gender, how they, I mean, it, it affects everything else. And then thinking, gosh, like I have, you know, what I say, how I think it has a tremendous impact on others. Um, and, and then started realizing, my gosh, you know, and again, I hate that this happened later in my life, but I think that's when I really started paying attention to it because I was studying it and I was seeing the impact of what was happening, particularly with our college age men when, when they weren't getting it right, was, you know, the, 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 how the system, how everything is really built based around men being able to be successful and maintaining, you know, we talk about power and privilege, particularly when it comes to race, but there's a big, big conversation, I think, when it comes to power and privilege about manhood. Um, and I think it's one that we tend to sometimes kind of throw together with race, but I think we got to pull them apart a little bit because there are ways in which I experience privilege and power um, that others do not. And there are men, and then race, the intersectionality of race, of course, is, is that there are men of certain races and identities who experience power and privilege in ways that I do not. So just the complexity of it, I think, is what I really started to come to get a handle over. Um, I have a, a one-year-old little boy um, and a four-year-old daughter, and the way that we talk with them and think about the things that we're consciously doing right now that kind of sets them on a path for how they think about gender um, and, and what gender means to them. And, you know, our, our little girl is right now saying that boys are better than girls and we're, we're kind of keeping ourselves open to that can mean a lot of different things, right? But instead, instead of saying, no, girls are better than boys, it's what is it? Why do you think that has anything to do with why someone would be better than another? So I think I'm understanding a little bit better now, mostly because, again, of, of the time I've spent with it. But certainly becoming a parent has also kind of um, enlightened me to just every single thing matters. Every conversation matters. Um, how we express feelings matter. How we create spaces for people to express feelings matter. So I think I think it's again, it's been within the past several years I've truly become conscious of gender for myself, for me as a man, and what impact particularly that has on other men and women. And again, everyone that falls, no matter where they fall on the spectrum, just how my manhood impacts that, I think I've become clearer on in the past several years. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think in a lot of the conversations we're having, just in general this year, but um, in life, there's a very, there's a lot of big problems, but we can kind of really focus on our individual impact and really focusing, I like, I like how you said, focusing on how your gender and your experience as a man has an impact on others, because that's something that you do have control over, um, whereas everything else in the world we may or may not have as much control. So very thank true. you for sharing that. I really didn't think, I don't think I really thought about gender and my role and gen, what that really means until I started working this job that I work. I've been with the Women's Resource Center for about five years, five and a half years. Uh, and it was, and it hasn't been until, you know, recent years that I've taken a lot of the things that I teach about and I talk about. And it's really sent me down like this self journey, you know, uh, trying to 
find out like who am I really, you know, and, and thinking about the different gender roles and how, and just kind of looking back and reflecting how they have impacted me, how they've impacted my life and my decisions, how I think, how I process certain things. It's been a journey of unlearning a lot of things, unlearning a lot of toxic traits and understanding like what is it that, you know, I want versus what is it that everyone else expects me to want because of my gender, you know? And so also knowing like kind of where I come from and knowing uh, the things that I've learned, how they also impact other people. Um, and so it's definitely been a journey of a lot of self-reflection um, and then also learning new and more healthy way to have and develop, you know, long lasting and healthy and safe relationships. Like I'm teaching, I could be teaching a class and talking to students about a certain topic at the same time, I'm really talking to myself too. So it, it's definitely been, been a journey in that. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing. I definitely feel like there's moments of when we're working with peer educators or we're teaching students and we're like, this is what you do. And then you hear yourself say it and you're like, yes, that is what I should do. That's such a good idea. Um, and I love that you point out it's an unlearning process too. Like we're not, we're all adults in this conversation. So we've all lived X amount of years. And so it's a lot of unlearning that has to happen too. So thank you for sharing that perspective. So as um, like a queer man growing up, like I was kind of forced to understand how my gender um, played a role in who I was attracted to. Um, I remember from like a very young age, I thought I identified as female solely because I knew I had an attraction to men and I didn't think that was a normal um, occurrence. So for the longest time, I remember struggling with how I identified just solely because um, I didn't think that being um, gay was considered a norm. It was, it was interesting too, because these struggles and the things that I, I was thinking about were happening in like second and third grade, when most of the unlearning as Dante was talking about might take place later in life. Um, while most people are just doing like addition, subtraction, like I was really grappling with how I was going to present myself to uh, a society of very like binary um, genders. And so I remember one specific memory was we had a field day in fifth grade um, and I really wanted to paint my nails, but it was looked down upon from most men in um, my friend group to um, portray myself as this like effeminate fingernail polish wearing person. And proudly, I'd like to say I still did paint my nails, but that was definitely my the start of a very long line of um, struggling with, like I said, how I present myself. Um, and I think even today, my identity um, as a man um, can sometimes feel fairly fluid based off of who I'm talking to. Um, and I think that might have something to do more with like the nature of, of code switching and feeling as though when I'm in a room of predominantly masculine um, men, I tend to lower my voice a few octaves. I don't use my hands as much. Um, but when I'm with friends that are identified as a female, I'm more um, effeminate um, in certain qualities. And so I guess that kind of expression has kind of looked a little bit more fluid and I'm, I'm kind of happy to say that I feel like our generation has kind of adopted that as more of like the norm um, rather than previous ones but it's still something that I see on college campus um, being struggled with day to day not just um, from queer men like myself but even like straight men 
um, painting their nails or wearing things that would be predominantly considered female clothing. Um, so it's definitely something that can feel blurred at times. From a very young age, I was definitely grappling with that idea of gender identity. Thank you for sharing your perspective. I think it's so, you made such a good point about while your experience was a lot more specific and intense, gender obviously plays such a role um, as a child. Um, we have these moments of making these decisions of who we're going to be, and that's oftentimes based on gender roles um, and not necessarily any other societal construct, which they're all societal constructs, right? So I really appreciate um, your personal opinion, you sharing your personal opinion with that. We greatly appreciate y'all coming to have this discussion. Um, we want to talk a little bit more about gender and then about gender, especially in relation to sexual and relationship violence, right? Um, but to get us started, let's just talk about your experience with these conversations on gender. So when we bring up a discussion maybe about sexism or gender or gender difference, um, when, if at all, do men and masculine folks really come into consideration or the conversation? Um, and how do folks talk with and about men about gender? You know, it's interesting. I don't think that it comes in as quickly uh, because I think like Tyler said, um, and even Dante kind of alluded to, it's just not something that you, and maybe this is the power and privilege, right, that comes along with um, <clears throat> the, the status is you don't think about it. You don't think about being a man until, you know, you're, until the power is taken away, you know, or if you're not a man and the power has been taken away from you, you absolutely are thinking about it. So it, it doesn't come in so quickly. I have found in my conversations with college age men that generally I'm kind of, I don't lead them to the conversation, but I do ask them, hey, like, how did you learn that? How did you figure that out? And that's when they'll say, well, I, from a friend or from a father or something along those lines. And then we'll start talking about okay, men and masculinity and how that might have some influence. And they'll go, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, where if I'm talking to someone about emotional and mental health and why, you know, I was talking to a fraternity man actually a couple of years ago, struggling deeply and mightily with mental health. And I said, so you're in this organization of a hundred plus people who are, you know, who you call brothers. How many of them actually know that you're struggling with depression as much as you are? Oh, three of them. How is it that you could be in an organization with people that you would call your best friends, but only three of them actually only know that you're struggling so mightily when it comes to depression and mental health? And they said, well, it's just not something that you talk about in those spaces. And then we start to get into the, the, the masculinity discussion and they go, oh, that's exactly it. And then, and then they won't go, and then they will say at that point, you're right, absolutely. It is, it, it is the, the undercurrent of hypermasculinity that's happening that probably keeps me from being able to speak about how I'm feeling, how I'm doing, or how I might then appear, appear inferior when it comes to the rest of the group. So, you know, again, it's not, it's never brought up typically by, by them. It is me probably kind of bringing it up and then it allows for a, a deeper conversation. They don't make the connection always to, and I think it might be like Tyler said, like they're just not, if you don't have to unlearn it, then you're never going to really think about it. And then you start to unlearn it and then you realize, okay, yes, I'm maybe I'm making conscious choices at that point um, that guide how I do this and how I think differently. But, you know, and, and even when we talk about conversations about gender-based violence, for example, and we, we get to why might, what might be an aspect of gender-based violence and that might contribute to this? Uh, well, yeah, we objectify women. Let's talk about that from a place of, again, position, power, and privilege. 
Well, yeah, we just have, we have, we have the ability, right? And the, we have the ability to be able to do it because that's what we're learning that it's okay to do. And then they start to think about the many ways in which, again, gendered from the male perspective or from the man perspective impacts the way that women experience gender and how it floats in. So again, it's usually for the college age men that I'm working with, they don't tend to go there quickly, but after a few kind of probing questions, they get there pretty quickly. Now, whether they make good choices after that to correct um, or to do it in a healthy way, most of them do, and some of them continue down that path. Again, it's a, it's a journey. But um, again, typically, I'm usually having to kind of prompt us in that way. Thanks so much for sharing that. I think, yes, mental health and masculinities could be a whole discussion. Yeah, I completely agree with Dr. Hughes, what he was saying about just that hyper masculinity um, that's engraved um, and almost passed down from generation to generation of um, men in families and friend groups. I think it's passed down through not just um, lived experience. Uh, so as like, I experienced this as a child, so it makes sense that you, you should also experience this. But two, in the language that we use every day, um, that we really don't maybe identify as being um, necessarily like, anti-men sharing their feelings, I like man up or like men don't cry or things that you usually wouldn't bat an eye to because they're just so colloquial at this point, but are actually fairly difficult to, to kind of take in um, and process as, as a young child. And so I think the conversations that are being had around uh, masculinity are not being held in the traditional like nuclear family, but rather in the media, both social media and television, movies and such, um, where the emotional man or the man that is going through something is usually either the laughing stock um, or like the problem character. Um, and it's that's it to the dimension of that character. Um, and similarly on social media, you don't see men really talking about things. And when you do, like specifically, someone uh, came out about being sexually assaulted, um, a very high level um, celebrity. And instead of being listened to or um, believed, it was um, cast aside as, well, you're a guy, you should be big and strong and tough and emotionally rigid. And so, two things should have happened. You should have either defended yourself and that would have never happened, or you should have just never come forward to begin with. I think that that incident alone speaks more to like the culture that we have surrounding men sharing emotional parts of themselves and why it is so important to have conversations like these uh, because you won't see them in common mainstream media and news outlets. Tyler, can I ask, were you thinking of, um, I was just reading another um, statement from Terry Crews recently. Is that who you're thinking about? Terry Crews, that's who I was thinking of. That is a really interesting example, right? Because Terry Crews has been a proponent for the Me Too movement as well. Um, I know that um, he's been lauded as someone who's spoken up on behalf of Me Too, which is mostly revolved around women and girls. And when he came forward with his own experience of assault at the hands of a high-powered Hollywood executive, a white man, that the response was not just disappointing, it was like non-existent. It was like held up for a moment as this, hey, 
this can happen too by some people. And then it was just kind of dissipated. And I think that, like you said, it speaks to something that happened happening in our culture where when we talk about gender, men aren't in the conversation as people who have gender, <laughs> like, and that violence, there's just a lot there, right? I just think that's really interesting that when we talk about gender, similarly, we use language a lot to label the other. And so women have a gender and queer folks have a gender or a lack of a gender or um, identify along that spectrum. But men, as the default, we don't have a robust conversation, as some of you have said, um, in the same way. Um, just to piggyback off of you know, what essentially what everyone else has said, those conversations hardly ever happen, you know? Um, what was interesting uh, that you guys spoke about the, the Terry Crews situation, it was interesting his thought process throughout the whole thing, you know? So he received a lot of flack or very little flack there is from speaking out about it, but it was interesting his thought process on it during the situation when it was actually happening. So in his mind, he, he spoke about this guy has just done this towards me. You know, I, I feel violated X, Y, and Z, but what do I do about it? Do I snap and do I go off? He's done it to me several times at, at the same event. Do I snap? Do I go off? And everybody looks at me as the big bald black guy, you know, that's going off causing a ruckus. Or do not do I not say anything and you know just allow this all these feelings and all these emotions just to kind of set in and so it's kind of like a rock stuck in a hard place do I do I go against all these stereotypes and what uh, society says we're supposed to be as men or do I you know show my emotion and show how I feel about somebody crossing these boundaries and risk being treated as if I were the uh the abuser or so to speak the offender in that aspect so it's like a cross i'm gonna it's almost like a lose-lose situation um we, when it comes to men and these issues especially when it comes to domestic domestic violence and sexual abuse um there's not uh in my experience and what i've noticed that there isn't a lot of safe spaces for men to feel comfortable enough to show that vulnerability um, and to express, you know, hey, I, I wasn't as strong as I thought I was supposed to be, or it's not even made to be strength to even talk about it. You know, you know, you think about the, the stereotypes that men are supposed to be strong, tough, and they can't show any weakness. If you cry, you're perceived to be weak. When actuality is like, no, I'm crying because I've been hurt. You know, I, I'm human. Men are just as human as anybody else. And we experience trauma. We experience hurt. We have emotions and all that and all that good stuff. Um, so so it's there's really not a lot of places to have those conversations. What I have noticed is um, they they come up when they're more intentional. And so kind of to speak on what Dr. Hughes was talking about, I've been in several atmospheres to where it took maybe a teacher or it took maybe just a, a mentor, someone gathering a bunch of guys together and just creating a safe space. Hey, look, whatever goes on, whatever we talk about within these four walls is just gonna stay with us. Like it, this is a safe space. You can feel free to be comfortable. And it usually takes maybe one, maybe two people sharing a personal experience. And then that's kind of like the icebreaker. And then, this, and then all of a sudden it just kind of trickles down to each individual person to where they start sharing their own experiences. And I've noticed 
the more and more those conversations start to happen or they're able to get together collectively, it really opens up the door for men to really express, you know, some of their personal experiences and to find healing uh, within that. But a lot of times, you know, how society tells us we're supposed to just brush everything off and keep it pushing, regardless as to how it makes you feel, you got to lace your bootstraps up, you got to keep going and act like it never affected you. But in actuality, that's even more toxic because all you're doing is suppressing all of your feelings and all your emotions. And eventually it's going to come out And nine times out of 10, it's not going to be in a healthy way. So, but mostly it doesn't just come up, hey, let's talk about gender. What does that mean to you? Like, it's usually someone being intentional and creating a safe space to where the guys feel uh, safe, number one, and feel vulnerable enough or comfortable enough to be vulnerable with one another. That's so interesting. Um, you were talking just a minute ago about like strength and what's perceived as strength for men is to not show emotion and that what it takes in these spaces when you're trying to have these conversations is someone to be brave enough to be vulnerable and that how that seems like it's been placed as a dichotomy, particularly for men, but for everyone in our culture. Katie, I would add there that I think, you know, when it when it does happen in spaces where men occupy or this guideline space, <clears throat> many times there's, there's alcohol involved or there's something that is tra- that has tragically occurred so that the next day when they are reflecting on that emotional moment that they had of sharing with other men, they can either go to, well, yeah, you know, that was the alcohol speaking or, you know, um, somebody got hurt and all of us were crying or, you know, um, this person did this to me and, and, and that's why I was crying, but it's never uh, an authentic kind of reflection on, oh, that, that was real sharing. So there's some way to be able to kind of cast it off as, well, that only happened because of this, not just, hey, I really just needed to, to be with other people and to really talk about what was going on and what I'm struggling with or what I don't quite understand. So the intentionality there also has to, there has to be an opportunity for someone to say, wait a minute, it, it, it's, it's not because you were drunk. Now, maybe the alcohol facilitated the release of the information, but that's still how you were feeling. That was still there. It, it didn't come, it didn't magically appear because of the alcohol you had consumed or you didn't start crying because of something just tragic that occurred. You started crying because you're feeling sad. You know, you're, you're grieving. It's a loss for you. You don't quite understand. It's not clear. So we have to have people that are willing to, to say, women, let me, let's pause for a moment and let's actually be in what's going on uh, as opposed to, because I think when they don't pause and we don't get them to pause, it's very quick to go to, well, I'm still strong. I'm strong. I'm strong, right? Because, um, you know, I, 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 I didn't, it's not bothering me anymore or I'm strong because it was just a, a moment. Well, no, it wasn't just a moment. Um, and I think when we ha- when we can help our men understand that, I think we we get them, we start moving them towards a place of feeling that th- this is normal behavior. Let's, let's normalize what you're going through. Let's normalize not being strong. Let's normalize um, having an emotion and, and being okay with it. Yes, that was a great <clears throat> kind of way to wrap up that that first um, question there kind of building on that conversation about vulnerability and particularly kind of back to our reference around Terry Crews and his experience of violence and assault on campus, especially the conversations around sexual and relationship violence often focus on one in four or one in five women experiencing attempted or completed assault by the time they graduate, right? We see those numbers. Um, But in my experience, when I joined classrooms or student orgs to talk about these topics, 
students are much less familiar with numbers like one in 17 men experiencing or reporting the same in their graduate experience or undergraduate experience or um, numbers like one in six men and boys experiencing non-consensual sexual contact before the age of 18 or um, studies that report that nearly one in two trans and non-binary people experience um, sexual violence or sexual assault in their lifetime as well. How do you think we can help open up this, com this part of the conversation specifically around gender? I think it has to start at a university level in the language that we use when we when we talk about support programs and what's been going on, starting with the Women's Center, it identifies, even though it's open to all uh, people across the gender spectrum, it is labeled specifically for women. That can be very dissuading to men um, or male identifying students that feel as though they need help but don't know exactly where to go. Similarly, I feel like that conversation isn't being had because of all of the things we just listed about how toxic masculinity finds its way into communicating your emotions effectively. Um, and as Dr. Hughes was kind of mentioning how men process trauma. Um, so I think that the reason why those statistics aren't as talked about are for two reasons. One, men just won't report it because it's a lot easier to either internalize it or uh, convince yourself that it didn't happen to you, uh, that it can't happen. Um, the, I guess the common thought process might be it can't happen to men because that narrative has never been surrounding men. Um, and like we said with Terry Crews, um, when it is surrounding men, the backlash and the negative response that they get uh, is so disheartening that you're, you have to believe that it can't quote unquote happen to men. So that I think is the first reason why we might not talk about the statistic. But two, it's because in general, there is just such a big problem with sexual assault on college campuses that identifying the most critical group of students and helping the majority of them get through makes the most sense. Because like you said, Katie, like one in four, one in five women experiencing sexual assault is just not okay. That does need to be talked about, but I don't think it should be a either or sort of conversation where you either talk about women um, being sexual assault survivors or men, um, but rather both in the same conversation. Um, and I think that should then lead to programs and support groups that target both men and women rather than just female identifying survivors. Because one thing that I've, I've noticed as a student here at Virginia Tech has been, has been that most survivor support groups come with a small little disclaimer and like the small font that says, open to only female identifying students. While it's great that they have that space, it only feeds the narrative that men don't experience this or that if, if they do experience it, that they don't need a support group to help them through that. And I think that that can just be very um, unhealthy for men to internalize that, that problem that they're having. So I think the conversation is kind of being halted because of the language that we're using and the crisis that we're seeing just with female identifying students, but that's not to mean that it shouldn't be talked about. That was really um, helpful, Tyler, thinking about both of those frames, right? The piece about institution and structure and resource management, because that's how we make a lot of decisions um, in our society in general and as well as on college campuses. 
And then also this piece about the underlying culture, um, that it's both and, and that your point again is that we need to be able to have these both and conversations, right? Um, all people experience violence of a sexual and relationship, uh, sexual nature or in relationships. And so we need to be able to have that more broad and full conversation. I've been think I've been thinking about this question for for a while. Um, and I, it just kind of makes me uh, reflect back because I went to Radford. I think it's important for because you think a lot of these kids in, in the college setting have never thought about any of this ever in life until, you know, maybe it it, it happens to them or it happens to someone who they know or they hear a rumor going around or whatever or what have you other than that probably most i would assume most kids probably don't hardly ever think about a lot of these topics and so for me i would i would i would like to see it be a part of your first few classes that you take your introductory classes that you take when you first come to college like these are some conversations that you must have that you should have this should be a requirement that you at least have an understanding of you know how often these issues happen you know uh, I would rather students be knowledgeable of the material and be able to make a decision based off of the knowledge that you've been given I would rather I would rather you be able to be placed in a situation to where you have the tools and you have the resources available and that you know hey you can go to the women's center Hey, there are some community, there are access to community resources that you can reach out to, even off campus, outside of the campus, that you can reach out to in the event that, you know, you experience something or you need some advice or you need to talk to somebody and even on, on campus as well. But I feel like uh, students need to have a knowledge base or built on uh, access of resources. I thought a lot about my freshman orientation you know how they kind of set up your little meetings during in your dorm rooms where your RAs or your RD, they come in, they talk to you, they welcome you, they do all these kind of things and they have all these, these kind of, Tyler, you mentioned about programming at the schools. And so I would, I would like, love to see like dorm room programming centered around these types of conversations, um, especially within the hallways. I mean, that builds rapport with the people on your hall. And so like have when you had like your dorm room meetings or whatnot, open the door for some of these types of conversations to happen. And then also giving like uh, your faculty and your staff training on how to approach these situations. You know, uh, something happens, the RA don't know what to do, you know? So, so it's, it, it would be, it would be helpful in, in them receiving uh, the knowledge and how to handle those situations, how to uh, be supporters and how to how to be advocates for people who experience domestic and sexual abuse and also giving people access to resources um, that they should have available on campus number one but then also off campus within this within the community if you know if your school doesn't have what you need i really like that perspective too and this kind of ties into all these pieces that we've been talking about too it's like we do, like the university requires X amount of sexual assault prevention education and Katie does bystander intervention training. And we have all these pieces, but as you all have pointed out as well, especially when we're talking about male identified students, these conversations are incredibly nuanced. I was just on a conference training last week and we're talking about toxic masculinity and how having conversations about what does a healthy relationship look like 
can still get at sexual assault prevention without being like, this is sexual assault prevention. And that way we can bring men into the conversation too, because everybody, regardless of gender identity or sexual orientation, hopefully wants to have a healthy relationship. Just to add to that, understand, I think for men, it's, it's also having an understanding as to what the viol- like what violence can look like, you know, for you. So typically, what we typically see um, when we think about domestic violence, you automatically assume physical or sexual abuse. But men can experience violence in different ways that we don't perceive as violence. You know, being being called uh, inappropriate names, being put down, being made to feel less than, being you know, being forced to work a job that you don't really want to work. I mean, violence can look different in many ways, but so I, I feel like identifying what violence looks like and what toxic behavior looks like gives a, a broader perspective as to, you know, hey, maybe I experienced this. Hey, such and such persuaded me into doing something sexual. I really didn't want to do it, but I didn't want to say no either. So I went ahead and went along with it. That's still considered violence. So having a, a, a broader understanding as to what domestic violence really is or sexual abuse really is, I think that will be very beneficial and helpful as well, too. Yes, to all of this. I want to make sure we hear from Dr. Hughes a little bit as well, because I know you've been involved in some of these conversations here on campus as well, um, both in your current role and in, in previous roles. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I've, I've, I've been in the work long enough to know that many times we try to we take folks and they've got a full-time job and it's not to mean that uh, men's identity development and masculinity cannot be part of what people are doing, but they have this full-time job where they're trying to do lots of things. And then that's a piece of what they're using to be able to do some education and some teaching. And what I found is, is that that means we're all over the place, right? you know, and, and it depends on the person that comes in. So you may have a great person in housing or residence life who's really committed and passionate about men's development and masculinity and and understanding how to, what, what type of experiences we are hoping they aspire to. And then that person leaves in a couple of years, then that program typically falters, you know, because it's not necessarily the passion may not be there with others, or they're not others who are operating at a certain level within that department to be able to continue it. Same thing happens in fraternity and story life or in student conduct or in, you know, hokey wellness or, or, you know, the core of cadets, I mean, all over the place. So I really think that, you know, the way that we, I think, draw attention to one in 17 and one in five and one in two is I think we need to have, we need to have a med center. You know, we, we need to have folks that are here that are committed and dedicated and devoted to that being the programmatic effort. It doesn't mean that they cannot exist throughout other offices. And, you know, Katie and Ashley, I'm sure you all would know that it, the Women's Center doesn't do it alone, right? There are many folks that are out there that are doing the work of the Women's Center. They just don't have Women's Center in their title and their full-time responsibility. So we got to resource it, I think. And we have to resource it with people and structure. Of course, that gets a little challenging, one, when COVID's happening. But then two, certainly what people might say about, well, wait a minute. So we're going to resource an effort to fund a support network for folks that stand at the top of power and privilege, um, you know, and, and that doesn't always, I think, fall too well with folks. But then if we think about what, what are we ultimately trying to do? I mean, we're, it, it's not necessarily that we're trying to reinforce nasty, toxic, and, and decent behaviors. What we're trying to reinforce in this is we're trying to help people just be better people um, and understand who they are and understand, understand how they impact others. 
So I think that residence-like program that Dante is alluding to is perfect and it's outstanding uh, because we also know too that it's in informal conversations that Tyler, not the conversation that Tyler has where he goes to someone's room and says, hey, can we talk? That's not where the conversation is happening. That's the most impactful. It's when Tyler is sitting there probably in a lounge under non-COVID circumstances and a student walks in to start studying and they just start talking. And then Tyler is having, working them through or working with them through a conversation where ultimately what happens is, is that the person starts to unlearn certain behaviors so they can learn better behaviors. And that's what we need more of. But again, it means we need people to be able to kind of stand uh, there, just to kind of to create that, to be part of facilitating that so that it's not dispersed amongst different departments, but there's kind of a, a coordinating effort that can be done with it. So you can have both the, the advocacy and, and, and piece that is about helping people and responding, but then also the programming side of it or the, um, the proactive programming that comes along with again, the identity development pieces and, and what that means and what it is and, and how you understand yourself a lot better. And, 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 you know, the Women's Center doesn't just support students, you know, the Women's Center is supporting faculty and staff as well. So if there was a comparable program, and of course that opens the door for, well, then do you have a, another center for, you know, um, folks that are not on the, the binary spectrum um, at all? I mean, yeah, we might, we might get there, right? Uh, but as Tyler said, I, says, I don't, I think that right now we have probably, we have met the need that we know is most pressing based off of what we're seeing and what we're understanding about the student experience. And one in four is certainly a lot different than one in 17, but it does necessarily mean that we can't resource our effort to be able to help both um, so that it, it can be both and it doesn't necessarily have to turn into an either or. But I, I think we have to do that and we have to do it well and we have to recognize and understand the many ways I think in which, um, you know, when we find our ways into conversations, if we are doing, if the men's program we have right now might be Katie's wonderful program, you know, uh, of working with bystander prevention, you know, you, there's ways to work in a discussion about masculinity into that conversation, even if it's not in a facilitator guide. And you gotta certainly have people that have the ability to do so. So when I would sit and when I was uh, facilitating the MVP program, Mentors of Violence Prevention, and we would get to that part where they wanted to, where they were talking about, you know, their feelings about law and policy and how sexual assault is managed by universities and how everything seems to be stacked towards supporting survivors and victims and, and nothing for offenders if the offenders are, are, are men and the, the victims and survivors are women. I would say, well, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Why do you, what do you think is going on there? Why do we think that it's okay to do X, Y, or Z? Where are we learning that? I I'm able to do that because I've got a passion for it and I've got the knowledge base for it, but there might be others who just skim right by that because the facilitator guide says, ask this question, ask this question next, because we have to move on to X, Y, Z activity. So I think we just have to continue to build up the groups of people uh, that can be part of the effort, but we probably definitely need a coordinating body. And the many times we've attempted to do this, I think it falls flat because there's not one coordinating effort, you know, and then it's very easy for it to go to the back burner when you have other things that are pressing and that come along uh, that also need just as much of attention. There's a lot to look forward to this semester, and we hope that you can you continue to listen to the podcast and engage with us virtually. Tyler, is there anything you are working on in the community that you would like to share? Yeah, so um, as a student here, I definitely believe it's important to be self-critical of the university that you attend. 
Um, and one of the biggest problems that I've seen on campus has been the lack of male identifying survivor support, um, not just with survivor support groups, but even having that conversation. Um, so I'm currently working on the Title IX Student Advisory Board um, to try to push a um, initiative that would open up spaces for male identifying survivors to come forward and talk about what they've experienced. But hopefully in the next few semesters while I'm here, something will, will be started to support all people that have experienced uh, sexual assault rather than just female identifying survivors. So that's what I'm working on. That's super admirable and I hope that you are successful in that adventure. Um, Dr. Hughes, do you have anything that you'd like to highlight or share um, from your office? No, uh, no, other than, you know, the Dean of Students office is a great place for people to start. Um, I think um, most times people are thinking I need to have this particular issue if I'm going to go see the Dean of Students office. And really, no matter what it is, personal, social, academic, we're there. Uh, our, we have a team of deans that are actually there to be able to help people. And, you know, I, I think it's a great catch all a lot of times for just about anything. So whether it's, you know, what Tyler is thinking about and working on as it relates to how we support uh, male identifying victims of, uh, of, of sexual assault, or it's anything that you might be thinking about, you know, we can be that place where people can come and we can certainly provide some good counseling advising and then figure out from there what's necessary and what might be next. So the Dean of Students Office, again, great place. Come visit uh, in New Hall West um, or email us at dean.students at vt.edu. Uh, and, you know, no matter who you're trying to email, if it's me, it will certainly get to me. And I would love to be able to talk with any student that has a need and how we can help make Virginia Tech feel a little bit better for all students. Awesome. And we'll definitely link all of your resources um, on our website as well for students to connect that way. Um, and then Dante, is there anything that you or the Women's Resource Center are working on that you'd like to highlight? Um, we actually just finished our community engagement team, just partnered with Pulaski Community Partners Coalition uh, for Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And we just finished a uh, our, our video series um, in which we shot four or three different videos. We shot the promotional and then we shot three separate videos covering three topics, uh, keeping youth safe, uh, animal abuse and domestic violence and men as allies. And so if, you, if anybody wants to ever check those videos out, you go to our website, wrcnrv.org backslash DVAM2020. So that's DVAM2020. And you can see all of those videos that we shot. Uh, we're also working on trying to do some of those same, same concepts in all the other localities here in the New River Valley. So hopefully we'll be able to create something like that with our other uh, coalition partners. Um, we also have established some billboards. I think it's four uh, throughout the New River Valley. So keep an eye out for that coming up in which we will promote our hotline. Uh, it's a 24 hour hotline service uh, that you can call. You can talk about whatever it is you need to talk about. If you need advice, if you need help, if you need advocacy help. Uh, you can do that. In addition to that, it'll also promote our chat line as well, too, which is basically a texting service, just like the hotline service, um, which it'll show all of our hours and everything with the texting service, too. So those are some, some of the things we've been working on with our community engagement. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. And once again, we'll make sure to link all of those resources as well. This has been episode seven of Gender Ed, a podcast from the Women's Center hosted by Katie and Ashley. Thank you for listening and we hope that you will join us next time.